an epigraph for our program tonight from Edward Hoagland, who said in 1974, wrote, Land of opportunity, land for the huddled masses. Where would the opportunity have been without the genocide of those old guard, bristling Indian tribes? We are tonight talking about the war that finally pacified uh, the Amerindians, the Native Americans, the war which might well be called the Forty Years' War, running from 1850 to, from around 1850 to 1890. My guests are Joseph Marshall III, who is a Native American writer and historian. Uh, one of his previous books is The Lakota Way, he being of the Lakota Sioux. Uh, his most recent book, The Journey of Crazy Horse, A Lakota History. Crazy Horse was, of course, one of the two leaders of the Indian side at the Battle of the Little Big Horn. My other guest tonight is Brian Hosmer, professor of history at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and director at the Newberry Library of the Darcy McNichol Center for American Indian History. Uh, Joseph Marshall, is it fair to, does, to, is it a reasonable concept to speak of a 40 years war on the Great Plains? Oh, definitely. Uh, conflict started uh, along the Oregon Trail in the 1850s and uh, continued until the final conflict at uh, Wounded Knee in 1890. And what, were the, what, what was the nature of the conflict? How did it erupt? What sorts of confrontations? I think uh, in the large overview of that period of time, it was white encroachment or invasion, uh, depending on your point of view. And uh, Native Americans, uh, namely Lakota in my, in my case, or Dakota or Nakota, uh, being pushed aside, uh, just attitudes about one another, uh, overwhelming numbers on a part of you Americans, uh, issues of land, how we viewed land, uh, our differing attitudes about it. Um, one side wanting to defend their homelands, the other side wanting to invade, encroach, uh, take over. Um, there were a lot of notable incidents um, in, in the Dakotas and Wyoming and Montana. So I think it was just, you know, people like to talk about it. There's a, there's a term that, that people say. I don't know if I completely agree with clash of cultures. Um, it was more than a clash of cultures. It was, it was a fight over the land itself. We wanted to keep it. Other people wanted to take it away from us. Dan George, an Indian a Native American who also figured in Hollywood, Yes, he did. In, uh, in a few decades ago, and was a very interesting presence, uh, ha said this at some point. When the white man came, we had the land, and they had the Bibles. Now they have the land, and we have <laughs> we the, have Bibles. the Bibles. <laughs> That's appropriate. Uh, is that the basic dynamic of it all? Oh, I think so. I th I think that it that it uh, we do have a clash of cultures in a way. We clash over land, as as Mr. Marshall uh, indicated. I think very very uh, very well. We also had a. Um, a series of justifications and rationalizations that go along with it, which is in some sense where the Bible comes in, uh, in, in uh, uh, the mind of policymakers in the 19th century who designated themselves friends of the Indian. They were affecting a trade of a sort, right? They were the, and the trade was in exchange for land and, uh, and freedom of action and autonomy. Uh, uh, Native peoples were to receive the blessings of civilization, and that would include schooling and religion uh, of, a, of a European type. 
and all of these sorts of things. And so there were a series of very elaborate justifications that that, that accompanied this and supported it. But of course, that begins in the 17th century Absolutely. on the East Coast, doesn't it? Absolutely. And and in some respects, the series of justifications sort of are, are, are modified and reframed, but in a way, it's the same story in a lot of respects. I mean, it's not precisely the same. I mean, the, the incidents are different and the peoples are different. Uh, Iroquois people in New York are different from Lakotas uh, on the plains, but uh, but from the, the from the larger perspective of, of, of non-Indians encroaching upon Indian lands, it is this sort of exchange. At the dawn of the European presence, in uh, in uh, this hemisphere, and particularly in what became the United States, what was the the population census of Native Americans? Do we know? No, not exactly. Uh, I can't know it exactly. No, for sure. But a lot of guesses have been made. Anthropologists, sociologists, yeah. historians have made guesses over the years, and and I've heard numbers uh, from a few hundred thousand, uh, maybe even three million to ten million. But again, that's anybody's guess. Well, it, has to, it has to have been more than a few hundred thousand Probably for the whole continent. Yeah. We're talking about North America all the way from Canada, the mm -hmm. Arctic Circle all the way down to Central America. Yeah. So it had to be, I mean, I'll add another guess, probably, you know, several million. Is that what historians would yeah, say? Yeah, I think days? particularly if you include uh, what is now Mexico, then the, then the figure is probably on the order of 20 million, uh, because Mexico, particularly the Valley of Mexico, was quite densely populated, and I think you know North America, north of Mexico, probably fairly conservatively, would be seven, eight million, maybe much more than that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. True. At this very time tonight, uh, November 16th, 2004, what's the Indian census? In the United States, depending on who uh, one wants to believe, I think the U.S. Census Bureau says nearly three million, or around three million. Um, the BIA says something less than that. But of course, this is on the basis of self-identity. You ask people, "What are you?" And if they say, especially where the Census Bureau is concerned, yeah, they say, "I'm Native American." You classify them right. as Native American, but most of them are surely of mixed heritage, are they not? Yeah, I think so. That's that's probably the case anymore. What do you know? Uh, Joseph Marshall about your own your own uh, genealogy um, I know uh, back several generations from both sides of my family um, my father and mother's side uh, probably three or four generations back uh, there are all kinds of interesting names like uh, mm -hmm. good voice eagle blunt arrow um, catches the eagle um, those kinds of names that that go and the stories that go with them uh, on one on my mother's side, there were two uh, healers or medicine men, mm -hmm. in in uh, who were both of my both my great grandfathers. On the other side, my father's side, there's some French blood, and there are names like Rubidoux, uh, Marshall. Uh, I have a grandfather who was a an Indian agent at the Rosebud Reservation. So it's 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 a mixture. It's it's sort of a composite of what happened historically mm -hmm. in the Northern Plains, and it's probably just about true of every family, every Native family in that part of the country. Before there's <clears throat> uh, English, Irish, or Scotch input, there was French, mm -hmm. because the French were in there earlier. Earlier, fur trade, yeah. uh, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, voyagers, those sorts of people. Yeah. You were raised on the Rosebud, the Rosebud Reservation. Reservation. Tell us about that. The Rosebud Reservation is in South Central South Dakota. Um, the, the, it's the traditional territory of my group of people, my ancestors, the Sichangu Lakota, which is our name for ourselves. Sichangu means burnt thigh. Uh, it's one of the seven groups of the Lakota. Uh, 
uh, now called Rosebud Sioux, obviously. It was that portion of South Dakota, if you were to visualize a map of South Dakota and put pier at the top of the apex and sort of in a triangular area going down to and below the Nebraska border, that was our Sichang Hulakhoka territory. So in 1881, when we became a reservation, we we're more or less in that area. So we're one of the few tribes anywhere whose reservation is in our ancestral territory, so to speak. So that's where I'm from. It was, became a reservation in 1881. Um, in eight, 1977, it lost easily four-fifths of its size because of a Supreme Court action. Um, in four out of five counties, which were part of the reservation, there were there was more non-Indian ownership of land than there was within the exterior boundaries of the reservation. So the state of South Dakota, uh, we went to court with them to to talk about that issue, to debate it, to contest one another over it. And it went through the circuit courts of appeal, ended up in the United States Supreme Court. And in 1977, the Supreme Court agreed with South Dakota's contention that the reservation should be reduced because of the proportion of non-Indian ownership of Indian land, which was more. And so... The Rosebud Reservation today is not only Todd County, South Dakota. Mm -hmm. Yet, apparently, there is a persisting Lakota culture. Absolutely. You have done a book titled The Lakota Way, Stories and Lessons for Living. So despite uh, admixture of genetic lines, despite uh, intrusions, depredations, and litigations from the general American uh, surround, there remains, at least up there, a significant Indian culture which there persists. There definitely is. It's, we've survived. We're survivalists. What accounts for that? Because in lots of other places, Indian culture has sort of faded away, hasn't it? Well, yeah, I guess it, it depends. Uh, the, the smaller tribes, as it were, took the harder hit because of no. just terms of numbers. We were fortunate to be one of the larger tribes in the Northern Plains, around 20,000 in, in 1850, probably. Mm -hmm. And again, that's a guesstimate. But when you say we, do you mean the Lakota particularly or the Sioux broadly? The, the Sioux in terms of the whole nation, the, the Lakota, the Dakota, and yeah. the Nakota, the mm -hmm. three parts of the nation. Um, there are three geographic areas as well as three uh, linguistic dialects. The Lakota are the largest group, uh, the Western group. And I mean, it's, just, it's just a human issue on so many levels. The harder you try to take something away from somebody, the harder they'll hang on to it. And there was some attrition, obviously. Boarding schools, uh, parochial schools, mm -hmm. those kind of things did did cause the the uh, dilution, the loss of a certain amount of our culture. But in every generation, there was just enough people. One way to look at it is just enough people who knew the culture and managed to pass it down to the next generation. And then the process repeated itself. Interestingly enough... Um, out of the, oh, I don't know, approximately 160 native languages that are being spoken in the country today, Lakota is number around number five in, an, in the percentage of native speakers mm -hmm. within our tribe. It was your first language. It, was my, it is my first language. We're about to stop for some commercials. Could you, in Lakota, say we're about to stop for some commercials? Well, now, I'll let you know.
We're going to plunge into the uh, Sioux Wars, the American Sioux Wars, as we continue our conversation with Brian Hosmer, Professor of History, University of Illinois, Chicago, Director of the Darcy McNichol Center for American Indian History at the Newberry Library, and Joseph Marshall III, writer, historian, uh, Lakota Sioux scholar, whose um, newest book is titled The Journey Crazy Horse, A Lakota History. That's published, by the way, by Viking. And I here, here want to testify that it's a wonderful reading. You are, sir, a very significant uh, and rather poetic uh, writer, Thank I would you. say. Thank you. And this is a gripping narrative, to be sure. And we'll come to Crazy Horse and to his great moment of confrontation, namely the Battle of the Little Bighorn, Crazy Horse and, and General Custer, one might say. But to look at these wars, the Sioux uh, uh, federal wars, we have to go way back to, 19, to 1854, to Fort Laramie. Well, what happened there? Um, Where is Fort Laramie? Fort Laramie is in what is now southeastern Wyoming, mm -hmm. uh, along the North Platte River, as it's known. We call it the Shell River. It was first Fort John. It was a trading post, and then the government, uh, I think, came along and purchased it and turned it into an army outpost. And... Um, by 1854, as a result of the 1851 Fort Laramie Treaty, um, a lot of the Lakota groups were expecting annuities, yearly delivery of foodstuffs and blankets and trinkets and so forth. And they were encamped, I think it was in August of 1854, near where Fort Laramie is, and the annuities were late, uh, which included some of the beef cattle that were given as meat. Um, it was it was an unbearably hot summer, and there were a lot of there was a lot of traffic along the Oregon Trail. Fort Laramie is right on the Oregon Trail, and uh, there were different groups of of Euro Americans, Mormons being one of the group, and just ordinary people going from east to west from Missouri to Oregon. And I think the last I heard, Brian, there were what over a period of 20 years, 350,000 people that travel along that trail. And that's that, what I understand. It's substantial, era, substantial, which numbers. is a lot of people. That's the entire pop, native population of the Northern Plains, or, or the Plains in general, in comparison. That summer, um, there was an incident. Uh, a cow got loosed, uh, loose, and wandered into, as the story goes, a Sichangu Lakota encampment. And because the annuities were late, there was no beef, there was no meat in that particular camp. Somebody shot and butchered the cow, gave it to some old people, and the owner came looking for it, as I recall the story. Of course, cow is nowhere to be had. It was probably digested by then. Uh, the owner complained to the commander at Fort Laramie, and uh, uh, negotiations were attempted. The, the, uh, the leader, the appointed leader of the camp, offered first a horse and a mule and several other things to pay for the cow, which was probably worth more than a cow was. All, all information said it was, a, it was a cow that was not in very good shape. Um, it, it slowly uh, it deteriorated, uh, and, and into the mix comes uh, Lieutenant John Grattan, fresh from West Point, as I understand it, and, and from everything I've read, a professed uh, Indian hater. Didn't think much of Indians, to say the least. And he took a, a squad of 30 soldiers, and two wagons and a mountain howitzer to the Sichangu encampment. He was bound and determined to arrest the man who had killed the cow, uh, and put him in irons, and of course the the old man leader, Conquering Bear, wasn't about to allow that to happen. He was the one who offered 
horses and mules mm. and, and to replace the cow, to pay for the cow. Um, Grattan came to the camp, one of the camps, to Conquering Bear's camp, where the cow had been butchered and uh, dispatched the soldiers. They got out of the wagon. He lined up his mountain houses, primed them, and uh, Conquering Bear was still trying to negotiate, still trying to avoid any trouble. And Grattan uh, gave the order to fire both the howitzers and, and the, the soldiers opened fire with their rifles. And Conquering Bear was one of the first to be wounded in, in this, in this uh, initial volley. And, of course, upon that, the, the men who were in the village, uh, the Lakota men who were there expecting trouble, retaliated. And in the course of a, a little bit, um, initially some of the, most of the soldiers were killed or wounded, and then eventually they were all except for one, I think. And so that is the Grattan incident. It was over a cow. It's called the Grattan incident because of the mm -hmm. lieutenant. He was killed in, in, that, in that exchange of, of gunfire. It's also called the Grattan massacre um, because all the soldiers were annihilated. So that was the first, at least from our purview, uh, the first significant conflict. Yeah. And, and Crazy Horse, as a boy, was there and witnessed that incident. And that led to a retaliation a little over a year later. I think it was September of 1855, further to the southeast and where it's now Nebraska. General Harney, William Harney, I think his name was William, mm -hmm. uh, came up with a sizable force and attacked Sichangu uh, Lakota encampment under the leadership of Iron Shell and Spotted Tail and Little Thunder. And uh, it was mainly Little Thunder's camp. And while Harney was was uh, talking with several Lakota leaders, the rest of the, his soldiers were surrounding the mm -hmm. camp, and, and the order was given to attack, and that was that was an annihilation, to say the least. And so the blood feud is on between the the Sioux and the federal forces, and it runs for some 40 years. It most certainly does, and and I think that, uh, uh, you know, characterizing it as, as military conflict between the Sioux and federal forces is one way to look at it, and and certainly a powerful way to look at it, but it also, I think, needs to be uh, needs to be remembered that settlers are driving a lot of this, that settlers, there are 350,000 of them, as Joseph mentioned a while mm -hmm. ago, and, and even, um, even some... Um, you might say sort of more progressive thinking uh, um, army generals from the east in particular uh, complained they said you know our our uh, our army is being dispatched to uh, to clean up the problems that settlers are causing so I think it needs to be understood in the broader context not simply one army against another there's more involved certainly one of the great interpreters of America and of American society in its early vigorous years was of course Alexis de Tocqueville uh, we know his democracy in America. Here is a rather longish quote, but I really want to put it before the two of you. Not from democracy in America, but from his notebook, his kind of private journal. And remember, this is uh, an aristocratic young Frenchman of 25 or 26 who's visiting America in the uh, uh, early uh, 1830s. This is even before the conflicts we're now talking about. But listen to what he has to say. In the midst of this American society, so well policed, so sententious, so charitable, a cold selfishness and complete insensibility prevails when it is a question of the natives of the country. The Americans of the United States do not let their dogs hunt the Indians as do the Spaniards in Mexico, but at bottom it is the same pitiless feeling which here as everywhere else 
animates the European race. This world here belongs to us, they tell themselves every day. The Indian race is destined for a final destruction which one cannot prevent and which it is not desirable to delay. Heaven has not made them to become civilized. It is necessary that they die. Besides, I do not want at all uh, to get mixed up in it. I will not do anything against them. I will limit myself to providing everything that will hasten their ruin. In time, I will have their lands and will be innocent of their death. Satisfied with his reasoning, the American goes to the church where he hears the minister of the gospel repeat every day that all men are brothers and the eternal being who has made them all in like image has given them all the duty to help one another. Isn't that incredible? I think it's it an is. Observation. I think it is. In the is. 1830s. And, oh, line, absolutely. absolutely. And, I, and I think it, uh, it, it illustrates something that we were chatting about not too long ago, which is that you have this conflict over land that is wrapped up in a series of justifications and rationalizations that proceed from a lot of different directions. And so the, the, um, uh, the pain and suffering that's inflicted upon Native yeah. people is explained away. And of a simpler version of de Chocqueville's interpretation of the American attitude is the famous maxim, the only good engine is a dead engine. Exactly. That was uh, General Sheridan's uh, statement. But but what you just read reminds me of, a, of, of an incident, uh, not an incident, but but a, an event that took place in 1879 in Omaha, Nebraska. It was the trial of Standing Bear, you recall. The group of Ponca Indians had been tricked to relocate to uh, tricked into relocating to to uh, Oklahoma 29 or so of them came back as i recall and to make a long story short the leader uh, somehow made friends with a newspaper editor in Omaha Nebraska named Tibbets i believe and the whole thing went to court and to preface this up to that point i think that in the court of competent, competent jurisdiction anywhere an indian was considered three-fifths of a person. So there was no legal standing in a court of law that an Indian could rely on. Um, as a result of this trial, uh, Standing Bear, it, it said Standing Bear became a person. But one has to examine the, the, the details of this significant event. Standing Bear essentially denounced his Indianness. He said, I'm ready to be civilized, I'm ready to be a farmer. And so the judge, Dundee, in this case, said, yes, uh, this person here is ready to give up uh, what he is and become civilized like we are, this magnanimous society, like this magnanimous nation. So based on that, I find in his favor, more or less. I'm just paraphrasing. But the point I'm trying to make is this. What would have happened if Standing Bear had said, no, I'm a Ponca, and I'll remain a Ponca, and I'll die a Ponca, no matter what you say, no matter what you think. What do you think would have happened then? I'm guessing that Judge Jundy would not have ruled in his favor. I think you're right. And that's the sort of response that, in fact, the uh, central figure of your new volume, namely Crazy Horse, took. He was not going no. to assimilate. No. He was proudly uh, Sue and would remain Sue. He would remain that way. That, that's what he professed. And that does lead to the Battle of the Little Bighorn, in which he plays really the central role, it seems to me, on the... Well, he on, was a significant player in, on that, the in that situation. Even more than Sitting Bull. Yeah, Sitting Bull was a political leader. Yeah. We need to talk about, we need to talk about that great confrontation, which marks, in a way, the... Uh, is it the high point or is it the nadir of the struggle between the Sioux 
and the federal forces. We'll go on with that directly after this. We are examining tonight the history of the uh, the Indian Wars, particularly the war between the Sioux and the federal government, which might properly be called the Forty Years' War, beginning in the early 1850s and running until 1890. Uh, we've talked about uh, the Harvey's attack in, in 1855. We want to lead up to the Little Bighorn, which is 1876. But before that come a few other major engagements. And uh, Joseph Marshall, let's talk then about the Minnesota Uprising, about Red Cloud's War, and on to the Little Bighorn. The Minnesota Uprising, as I recall, was in 1862-1864 in what is now southwest Minnesota. It was led by Little Crow, who was a Dakota, because of the same old issue of agreements being made and broken. and Usually uh, encroachments upon land supposedly ceded to the Indians. Yes, yes. Yeah. Or the Indians, never mind having been ceded, the Indians regarded the land the as land theirs their to own, begin yes. with. Yeah. So yeah. the legalities maybe were not clear to them at the, at the time, only that people were invading and doing uh, things that were not sitting well with them. So that happened in 1862, 1864. It was a bloody uprising. And, and I think, as I recall, Brian, it was what, 38 Indians, uh, Dakota, ended up being hung. Being hanged in, uh, in 18, on Christmas Day, uh, right. 1868. Really? It was the largest right. uh, mass execution in American history. Hmm. Uh, and um, uh, with a large crowd of people. And Where people. was that? It was in Mankato. Mankato, Minnesota. Hmm. Uh, Mankato, uh, uh, interesting enough, is a Dakota word, Mankato, meaning blue earth, which is maybe neither here nor there. But So the word of those kinds of events actually uh, obviously flow mm -hmm. to other parts of the, the nation, as it were, and, and the Lakota in the West uh, heard what was going on. And at that time, in eight, early 1860s, prior to 1862, the Bozeman Trail had been staked out, literally staked out, from what is now around Casper, Wyoming, or Douglas, Wyoming, all the way to through east of the foothills of the Bighorn Mountains all the way into what is now south-central Minnesota. It was a quicker, at that time, route to the gold fields of Montana. And a man named Bozeman literally staked out a trail. He pounded stakes so that mm -hmm. other people could follow the trail. And it was uh, a direct uh, violation of an agreement that uh, the Lakota had with the federal government, federal peace commissioners, that that non-Indians couldn't enter into our territory without permission. And no one had given John Bozeman permission to you know, pound stakes on the earth and establish a trail. And shortly following the uh, Minnesota uprising comes Red Cloud's War. And that's the Bozeman Trail was the beginning of that. Uh, it was people starting to travel up that that trail to try to get to the Montana gold field. So through Sioux territory, through Lakota territory, yeah. and 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 if you ever been to that part of the country, the Big Iron Mountains are not only aesthetically beautiful, but there there was a lot of game. There was a lot of resources mm -hmm. there that we had to rely on to make a living. Now, who, who is Red Health. Cloud? Red Cloud is an Oglala Lakota. He was a, a famed orator. He, he was a man of some influence. He was a head of two or three influential families, and he began his rise as a political leader early on in his life. So by by 1860, he, he was quite influential, uh, and he was the central figure, the central leader 
among the different Lakota groups, the Oglala Lakota groups. Does he lead a general uprising against the Federals? It's it's not so much an uprising as just a defending the homeland, mm -hmm. as it were, trying to drive out the people who were traveling. They start shooting. Oh yeah, there was a shoot. There was a lot of raids against uh, some of the wagon trains coming up, going up the Bozeman Trail. And what's the, what's the uh, the federal response? Uh, to send in troops. Um, Carrington, Colonel Carrington was sent in, as I recall, 1865, 1866, somewhere in there. And his job was to build three forts along the Bozeman Trail to protect mm -hmm. the people, the non-Indians using the trail, Fort Reno, in more or less central Wyoming, uh, and then Fort Phil Kearney further north near the present town of Sheridan, and Fort C.O. Smith, which is, I think, believe uh, I believe near the town of Hardin, Montana. So three forts in a row. Um, the two, Fort Phil Kearney and Fort uh, C.S. Smith, were the, the, the quintessential log palisade forts uh, that you see in the movies. Always commanded by John Wayne. Oh, yeah, yeah, probably. And so C Colonel Carrington brought seven, 800 people uh, into that territory in violation of, of, in fact, he came through Fort Laramie at a time there was negotiations going on, as I remember, recall mm -hmm. the story. So uh, Red Cloud was not pleased with that development and stormed out of that, that session. Uh, and, and Carrington proceeded up, built his forts, and that's what started what is, what is known as the Red Clouds Were War. Were there some direct uh, pitched battle confrontations? Oh, absolutely. There were, How many? there were three of them that I can recall. Yeah. In addition to the raidings along the trail, mm. uh, Lakota Cheyenne Warriors would, would attack the, the, the travelers, but there, there was the, the Fetterman battle or the battle of the hundred in hand as we call it and then the year later about it was the uh, wagon box fight mm -hmm. and then it just you know in that same time what period. sorts of casualties um casualties in the Fetterman battle an entire contingent of um mounted and and in, uh infantry about 80 actually two civilians 78 soldiers mm -hmm. wiped out in one battle um that was our battle of the hundred in hand the um uh, Casualties in the wagon box fight, a few on the soldier side, but more on the Lakota side, because that was at a time when I believe breech-loading rifles were issued to the 18th Infantry. A breech-loading rifle was, was different than a, than a regular single-shot muzzle-loading rifle. A single-shot muzzle-loader took some time to reload. And so we knew that. So we knew that we had a time between one volley, or when one soldier fired the gun, we had a few seconds before he could fire again. What prevails at that time in the minds of the uh, the native leaders and, for that matter, uh, the men who follow them, the braves, so to speak? Are they convinced, are, are they entertaining the notion that you can really drive uh, the Europeans, the Americans, away and hold this territory as a true Indian, uh, a true Indian uh, preserve? Or are they sort of desperate last gasp We'll kill them before we die. I don't think I don't think in the 1860s it's desperate last gasp at all. I think a couple of things yeah. need to be borne in mind. For one thing, uh, Red Cloud shut the Bozeman Trail down, uh, and mm -hmm. and and it was stopped and fought the U.S. Army to a standstill. And and, and so they feel that they equal forced them forced them to retreat. And by they feel the, they've got equal force. And well, they, they and and the Lakotas in the 1860s, I think it needs to be understood, are not a defeated people. Yeah. They are people on the rise and 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 fairly certain of their of their ability to prevail. Mm -hmm. uh, now it's you know if you sort of look at the broader circumstances and and the power of manufacturing society, you might want to look at it a different way. But I would argue that in the 
the 1860s, and Lakotas don't feel as though this is less this is last ditch at all. They're no. they're they're now confident in their abilities. Now let's put into this the young man Crazy Horse. The Crazy Horse was in 1866 in his early 20s. Yeah. He was just coming into his own. He had established a reputation as a fighting man. And he was build, beginning to build a reputation as a leader of fighting men. Uh, he was not the, the, the quote-unquote chief that people think that he was. Uh, he wasn't aspiring to be that. But he was fast rising as far as his abilities as a warrior and as, as a warrior leader. Who but was, he's also a visionary, isn't he? Well... I mean, the, the, well, maybe not. Um, there, Why there, is he called Crazy Horse? Uh, because that was his father's name, and his father gave him the name. And no one knows for sure the the real origin of the name because Crazy Horse was probably the Crazy Horse that we're talking about now is probably the third one to have the name. Uh -huh. And there was probably some incident in his grandfather's day. His grandfather, as a young man, did to earned the name. The name was earned. It was given because of an event or a characteristic or something along those lines. So so Crazy Horse didn't make the name for himself. He was given it by his, by his father, who was Crazy Horse. Why does he rise to eminence? What sort of eminence is it? He, he, he rose because he had a, an uncanny ability to remain calm when others were losing their minds in the midst of unfettered violence. Sounds like a, like the Kipling poem. Uh, yeah. You could keep your mind. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly what he was. And and he was, you know, he had that ability. And when, when one has that kind of ability that puts him head and shoulders, as it were, figuratively above everybody else, people will gravitate toward him. And he, and he, he never lost a battle. He never lost an encounter that I know of that he led as a, as a mm -hmm. fighting man. So we come to the Battle of the Little Bighorn. We have to set the stage for that. What's going on before the battle? Well, before the Battle of the Little Bighorn, the the uh, you might say the vice is, is is tightening, and and the because of the destruction of bison, more and more uh, Native peoples, Lakotas, are moving to agencies for food and clothing and shelter. We're up to and the year 1876. We're in the in the 1870s, and in 1875. The uh, uh, the national government government issues an order, and it says that all native peoples must report to agencies by uh, January 31st, 1876, or will be considered hostile. And when they are considered quote unquote hostile, that meant that the army could seek out and destroy them. What does it mean, report to agencies? There, there, each reservation had a headquarters, mm -hmm. and it was it was staffed by an agent who was the federal government's representative on the ground, and his job was to bring people in and literally count them, but and once Indian people reported to agencies, they were not supposed to leave. This was supposed to be the end of the day, and so they issued an order that every last Northern Plains person now must report to an agency by the end of January uh, of, uh, of uh, 1876. Many did. Many did not, and so what what happens at, uh, in uh, at the Rosebud and then at Little Bighorn is this you might say chasing uh, down the remnants of uh, of the Lakota people who refuse to surrender and forcing them to check in you might say yeah. at the agents. Now, right. as Russian military strategists used to say, what was the correlation of forces? Correlation of forces. Um, the two leaders who who were holdouts as. as as Brian says, um, was Sitting Bull of the Hukapapa Lakota and uh, Crazy Horse of the Oglala Lakota. I mean, there were other leaders 
there too, but they were the two primary ones. Uh, Sitting Bull more a politician than a military leader, but but he had a significant reputation in his in his younger days as a warrior as well. <clears throat> I say that because each of those two groups probably um, was a few thousand people overall. The the misconception, one of the biggest misconceptions that rises out of the the Battle of the Little Bighorn, is the number of warriors on our side. Uh, I mean, figures in the neighborhood of four, five, six thousand are bandied about. Not true. Not true. At that point in time, um, given what I've learned, what I've been told, what I know about my ancestral society at that point in time, probably about 10% of the population were full-fledged warriors, physically capable, capable and at an age and equipped and trained to go into battle at a given notice. So if, we, if the numbers that we keep hearing about the Little Bighorn in terms of the number of people there is true or even close, 8,000 or so, 8,000 to 10,000, then if we use that 10% figure, then that's only 800 to 1,000 fighting men. Given what was going on at the time, both Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull, especially Crazy Horse, sent out a call to the younger unattached men who were at the agencies already. And a lot of those people responded. We don't know how many, but my guesstimate, my, my best guess, is the number of fighting men that we had at the time uh, when, when the Battle of the Rosebud and the Battle of the Little Bighorn took place was anywhere from 1,000 to 1,200 men. The, the issue which leads to the confrontation is the, the lust for gold, is it not? Basically. The gold has been discovered in the Black, the Black Hills. Hills. The, the the presence of gold, the, the, it, it was confirmed by Custer's exposition in 1874. And once the word got out, of course, miners and other you know, opportunists just you know, flooded into the Black Hills, and the Army, the government, had a hard time keeping them out. There was no way that was going to happen. And so it was it was like a flood. Given, I mean, the other issue here that that unfortunately historians don't talk about is the numbers issue. At the time... I think the total American, your American population was at least 25 million. The total population of the Northern Plains was probably, of all those 60 yeah. tribes from south to north, you know, from central Texas to southern Canada, mm -hmm. was probably about 300,000. The total population of the Dakota, Nakota, and the Lakota was probably around 20,000. So those issues aren't talked about as, as much as they should be because of the numbers issue, there were more guns, there was more technology, obviously. So it was probably inevitable that the numbers would would have overwhelmed us at some point. Now, what's the immediate mission that Custer and Reno and so on are undertaking? As Brian said, that summer, it was the object was to round up all the Indians and put them on reservations. Get them on the reservation. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what it was. Mm -hmm. So uh, Terry, uh, Custer was coming with Terry from Fort Abraham Lincoln in, in from the east, which is what now central mm -hmm. uh, North Dakota. Uh, Sturgis, I think, was coming from uh, the northwest, and and Crook was coming from the south, from um, Fort Fetterman, uh, coming up west of Castle. Just to round up these two and get them yeah, back on the road. three-way pincher movement. Yeah. We're going to catch them, catch us, and and pack us What's off. What's the out. total size of the federal force? Um, let's see. Terry was. Uh, 
about a thousand, maybe. I think it's somewhere around there, and I think the total yeah. size of the federal mm -hmm. force is probably on the order of three to five thousand. Three to five thousand. Right. Right. Yeah, right. it's scattered over. The group you know, wiped out under Custer's command is only about. 200. 600? No, no. 200, 250 at the, uh, at the and, Little Bighorn, right. but the yeah. 600. Right. Yeah, at the Little Bighorn. In, yeah. the, yeah. in the group, there's 600. You've got to combine that with Rosebud and then mm -hmm. the aftermath. There are about 600 in that yeah. group. Yeah. All together. Yeah. So, what the, you've gathered uh, in, in the doing of this book, the background for The Journey of Crazy Horse by Joseph M. Marshall III, uh, the background is based upon interviews you've done with elders who had some knowledge of this from. From their parents from and their grandparents. Parents. Yeah, my grandparents, my maternal grandparents, uh, and my paternal grandparents, were the first, if not second generation, also of of, of Lakota to be on a reservation. Mm -hmm. So because of that point in time, their insight, their recollection of things their parents and grandparents told them, was you know, like we would have if our if our parents and grandparents told us. So they were at a very uh, critical point in, in the history of reservations because their parents and great-grandparents were the ones who gave up their free-roaming life. They were the ones being rounded up by the cavalry in 1876. So in the journey of Crazy Horse and in the great denouement of the, the battle at the Little Bighorn, we are getting the story through Lakota eyes. Exactly. And what do the Lakota see that the usual accounts we have uh, do not highlight? At, at a lot of things, actually. Um, the number of warriors that we were just talking about, for one thing, uh, how the battle unfolded, um, those kinds of things. Uh, the number of uh, firearms uh, that were there, in, in, uh, that we had, um, it's largely believed that we had a lot of repeating rifles. We had a certain amount, but not a lot. And keep in mind that the 7th Cavalry, 640-some men, every one of them as I recall, reading and hearing, was armed with a rifle, Spencer rifle, sure. and um, a six-shot pistol. And every rifle had 100 rounds of ammunition available, and every pistol had 25 rounds of ammunition available. So you do the math, and you figure, you know, that's thousands and thousands of rounds of ammunition. If what I'm saying is even close to the truth, about 1,200 warriors or so, mm -hmm. about half of them were armed. But while some of them might have had repeating rifles, a lot of them had muzzle loaders, uh, pistols, and a variety of ammunition. So they didn't have the kind of ordnance available to them that the 7th Cavalry did. We have to return to the battle mm -hmm. and the waging of the battle. And for that matter, the Lakota understanding of what they were up against and who this Custer fellow was and what they made of him. We have to pursue all of that, but for the moment we need to pause for the usual uh, merely entrepreneurial reasons. And uh, then we will return to Joseph Marshall III, author of The Journey of Crazy Horse, and to Brian Hosmer, director of the Darcy McNichols Center for American Indian History at the Newberry Library. All of that to follow after this. And on to the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Uh, Joseph Marshall, what did uh, Crazy Horse and uh, the warriors around him make of their opponent, Custer? They called him yellow-haired, is that right? They had, a, Lakota had a couple names, as as did a couple of other Indian tribes. No. Um, we call him long hair or yellow long hair. hair. Yeah. Um, but I think we didn't realize that it was him until after the second engagement of the battle uh -huh. was over and his body was f discovered by probably a couple of Cheyenne women who had seen him years earlier. Uh, they recognized him in death. Um, 
I think we thought that it might have been Crook who came back to attack because we had gone down from Ash Creek in, in the same area where Little Bighorn is uh, on eight days earlier, June 17th, somewhere in there. Uh, and to me, that's the more interesting battle than the Little Bighorn um, because Crazy Horse took a force of about four or 500. I mean, again, it said several thousand, but mm -hmm. that's not true. Four or 500 warriors, and they rode through the night, if you can imagine, riding 50 to 60 miles at night over rough country, over the Wolf Mountains, and around dawn, engaging, finding and engaging Crook, who had a larger force, probably about 1,000 soldiers and 300 Shoshone and Crow Indians who were uh, along as auxiliaries. They fought them all day long. By the way, when they fight, this is man-to-man. -man. This is direct combat. That's what, uh, that's what it gets down to eventually. At first, it's cavalry charges and those kind of things, because here yeah. we're, we're talking about, on our side at least, uh, bona fide cavalry probably, you know, some of the best cavalry around in that part of the country. And sometimes the army was cavalry, sometimes they were mounted infantry. Mm -hmm. I forget what crook was. I think mm -hmm. it might have been some mounted infantry. Uh, so that was on June 17th. So when Custer attacked on June 25th, the feeling was, okay, well, here the soldiers are coming back. They want to get back at us for what we did to them eight days earlier. And it really didn't matter who. When you put yourself in the mindset of those people there, the soldiers came very close to coming into the village where the women and children and old people were. And so the warriors were, to put it mildly, upset. And most of them were feeling very confident because of what had happened eight days earlier. They felt that they could whip any soldier that wore pants. So when these guys attacked, the, the warriors rose to the occasion and, and kicked their butts. And then, and then when the second engagement happened, uh, they rose to the occasion again, but we didn't know who it was no. until after. What explains their victory? What explains their victory is great, uh, great uh, battle skills, bravery, uh, good tactics, all yeah, of these. Good generalship. And good generalship. I think so. I think so. I think Crazy Horse was a master tactician. He had some very, uh, what became to be sort of characteristic kinds of strategies that he employed in a number of different ways. But they were they now were the darn good at this it. battle. What's the date? July. June 25th, June 25th, 1876. The consequence is great outrage in the rest of America. Absolutely. About I think one of the things that that, uh, that should be borne in mind is that news of this battle or news news of this defeat on part of Custer hit the United States in the east at the same time as the centennial celebration in Philadelphia, mm. which was a celebration of American progress. And so at yeah. the same time you have these giant right, you have these giant coreless uh, coreless engines and celebrations of technology, mm -hmm. in comes the word from the West that the uh, the you know the, the the signal army, the great army of the uh, yeah. of this nation had been defeated by quote-unquote, right, uh, half-dressed savages, as the terminology went in the newspapers. And, the and so they were stunned. And the consequence of their being stunned is what? Well, the consequences of their being stunned is redoubling of the efforts. I mean, and, and what had begun earlier was was uh, was ratcheted up, really. But I think it needs to be borne in mind as well that the, that the long-term effects of of contact were playing themselves out as well. People were starving. Lakota people were starving. The bison had been destroyed. They found fewer and fewer places to hunt. And so, yes, the army came in with a renewed force after Little Bighorn to quote-unquote avenge what had happened. But that's not really the whole story. The story is that people were streaming into the agencies because they had no food, they had no clothing. Right. And in essence, it's the defeat. Uh, it's a lasting defeat for 
the Lakota and for the Sioux. It certainly general. was a military defeat. No. And, 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 but does uh, it break their spirit? Probably to a certain extent. I, I think there was also at the same time a realization that that the definition of survival had to be uh, decided upon. And maybe living, I, I suppose in some of their minds, living among the whites uh, was a way to survive. Yeah. And maybe things would change somehow and things could, would get back to something of the way they were. Who knows? The central figure uh, upon whom you focus, and he was the central figure on the, uh, on the Sioux side of the battle, Crazy Horse doesn't last much longer than that battle, does he? No, he he. Uh, the year later, he's uh, a year, a little over a year later, he's killed at Fort Robinson, Nebraska. And is that by absolute intention? Is this essentially an assassination? Probably, given the uh, feelings, emotions, um, machinations, politics that was going on at the time at Fort Robinson on both the Lakota side and in the, the government side. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the, the government uh, in the person of General Cook and his subordinates were afraid of Crazy Horse. They, I think they were afraid of his influence over the younger so men. So was there a hit order out on Crazy Horse? Probably. Yeah. Probably. There was at least an order to incarcerate him so that he could be transported to the Dry Tortugas off the Florida coast to be imprisoned and, and out of the way. Then his influence is gone. He personally can't lead an uprising that they were afraid of. A similar death awaits uh, Sitting Bull, but somewhat later. Fourteen years later. Fourteen years later. Uh, Thirteen years later. After he's already appeared in Buffalo Bills. Yeah, he had a stint in Buffalo Bills while well, well, he traveled with Buffalo Bills. Incredible aspect side. of yeah. all of it. Yeah. Um, um, he appeared in Europe. In, yes, in he traveled Europe. Buffalo Bills Wild West show. Mm -hmm. Comes back to the reservation. And he's killed there by Indian police. And he settles down, and, and he, the, what brings it on is the uh, ghost dance. Yes, we The ghost dance started that, in the Southwest. Uh, by, a great revivalist uh, movement. Explain yes. what the ghost dance was. Well, as far as I understand it, the ghost dance was, uh, it, it, it had its, its genesis in a, in a vision that a Paiute man had during an eclipse of the sun. Right. His name was Provoca. Provoca. Exactly. And it's, it's really a, a religious movement. Yes. Oh, it sweeps it Indian right. uh, culture in that, right. in the, the last years of the 19th dance. century. It goes from place to place, right. and, it, and, and, that, and it finds adherents uh, in reservations and speaks to people who were searching for some answers in their own the, lives. The basic mm -hmm. assurance in the ghost dance cult is we do this dance, and it will somehow magically produce uh, the return of the buffalo, and the disappearance of the whites. I think so. I think, yeah, but basically. I think that, that sort of magically, maybe not exactly the way it would be the, the best way to phrase it, uh, in uh, in native spirituality. In a lot of cases, mm -hmm. and what I understand about Lakota spirituality, speaking as an outsider, Indian people understand that human actions can affect the universal order. So it's mm -hmm. not so much magic; it's that what human people, human beings, can by uh, ritual purity and by the performance mm -hmm. of certain rites, actually affect, affect the way the cosmos work. And so this was an effort to affect this kind But the of predicted change. outcome or the expected outcome <clears throat> is a restoration of the world as it was. Of a sort. Before the white right. man. Yeah. And right. and wouldn't you want that given the time and, and if you were Lakota, would you wouldn't you want that? I would have. Now why was that viewed and since it was essentially a prediction that wasn't going to come true, why was that a matter of such concern back in Washington? Because of uh, people like Sitting Bull um, who, who the government realized still had a lot of influence over mm -hmm. 
the Lakota groups in general. He was still revered, he was still popular, and he sent emissaries to check out the ghost dance and uh, was on the verge of deciding that he liked it when uh, McLaughlin, the Indian agent at Standing Rock, uh, recruited um, a couple of squads or a group of Indians to be police uh, and sent them after Sitting Bull. Some of those Indian police were Sitting Bull's own relatives. And um, they went to arrest him. Of course, he didn't want to be arrested. Uh, one of his sons or one of his own relatives, uh, who knows who fired the first shot. But the, the, the officer who, in, who was in charge of the Indian police detachment was wounded first. And as he was falling, he fired his gun and, and hit Sitting Bull and killed him. So you don't think this was a hit order? This was It was an escalation that kind of got out it, of it was, yeah. It was an order to arrest Sitting Bull, to yeah. bring him into the agency, to to sort of neutralize him in terms of uh, the government being afraid of an uprising because mm -hmm. the Lakota put their own twist on the ghost dance mm -hmm. movement because a medicine man named Kicking Bear said he, he made ghost dance shirts. Everybody had ghost dance shirts, but he added a twist of his shirts would stop bullets. Mm -hmm. So when the white authorities like McLaughlin heard that, then the, then the red flag went up and, and, and they were afraid of an, upper, an arm military conflict and armed uprising and the new sitting bull would be could lead such an uprising yeah. there's something of course so touching about the ghost dance movement it reminds one of something that happened years later in the south pacific uh, the cargo cults mm -hmm. which also look forward to getting rid of all these euro of uh, influences and getting those people out of there who have colonialized uh, new guinea and places like that and uh, uh, the old order will be restored. Yeah, anthropologists and, and historians like to make a lot of those kinds of connections. They're nativist movements. And I, they call, call them nativist movements. They call them revitalization movements. Yeah. And I think there's been a there's a vast literature written on these kinds of things. And I think there is something sort of mm -hmm. fundamental to human nature about sure. this. But I also think it's 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 a little bit facile sometimes to compare all of these things. I think the ghost dance needs to be understood on its own terms and not simply as some as one manifestation of many kinds of things. We are marching through a vast and fascinating history full of rich detail which we can't fully develop, but we should come to uh, what is really the end of the wars and, in a way, that which breaks the spirit of the Sioux Nation, namely uh, little, uh, namely, what happens uh, at Wounded Knee in the year 1890. 1890, December 29th. Um, shortly after Sitting Bull was killed, uh, Bigfoot, who is uh, an elder leader, Aminikanju, um, a lot of his people were uh, women and children, some of them widows of people, of, of men who had been killed in, in the wars. And he was concerned of uh, for retaliation. And so he, he decided to head to the Pine Ridge Reservation, um, where Red Cloud was and where those groups of people were, to seek their protection. And um, somewhere along the trail, he was intercepted by... Uh, a, a unit of, of uh, soldiers and was taken to encamp on Woodindy Creek, which is on the Pine Ridge Reservation. Um, several hundred people um, on the Indian side, uh, about 500 troops, as I recall. Interestingly enough, the 7th and the 9th Cavalries. 7th Cavalry was the uh, Custer's old unit. Yeah. And in fact, a few of the company commanders were still in the 7th Cavalry at that time. And uh, the 9th Cavalry was one of the units of the what was called the Buffalo Soldiers, the, the Negro Soldiers.
Um, they were encamped. Attempts were made to confiscate, confiscate weapons. A few weapons are grudgingly handed over by the Indians. And another attempt is made on the morning of December 29th, and it's colder and heck. And um, in the process, when soldiers are in the camp, and keep in mind that the rest of the soldiers are sort of ringed around the camp, and with them they have uh, probably the state-of-the-art light artillery called Hotchkiss guns, which have a very rapid rate of fire. And if I recall, about a 20-millimeter shell, somewhere in that uh, caliber. Uh, in the camp, a shot is fired and all hell breaks loose. Um, the soldiers around the camp open fire into the camp, even killing some of their own. And it turns into a massacre, and mostly women and children are killed. How many? Oh, 180, mm -hmm. some, mm -hmm. something like that, 187. And, and some, no American and some, losses except by accidental yeah. fire. Yeah. And, some, and some women and children uh, who were shot found more than a mile away yes. from the initial battle, mm -hmm. presumably... Track down, Track running chase away. down, and chase down, sure. and, and right. shot running away. Yeah, cruel, dreadful. Oh yeah, yeah. And I find it interesting that a couple of things are interesting about this whole discussion. One about the, the battle itself. For that incident, for that, whatever we want to label it, however each one of us wants to label it, from my cultural perspectives, uh, massacre, battle, whatever. Yeah. Not a good thing. However, we look at it. Eighteen medals of honor were issued to those soldiers. Now granted, it was probably the, one of the only medals issued at the time, but for that kind of an incident to, for soldiers who participated in that to be given that kind of decoration, <laughs> uh, I think is something that we need to know about and we need to think about, mm -hmm. uh, the, the motivation behind that. And the other broader context that, that I as a native person and I as a Lakota person take issue with is this whole discussion of Indian wars or the Great Sioux Wars. We didn't start the, the wars, but because another side gives itself the right to tell the history, they get to label it however they want. The Great Sioux Wars, the Indian Wars. Well, that isn't what it is the to us. The Great history is written by the victors. Exactly. Yeah. Or those who perceive themselves to be the victors. Yeah. Uh, it's not those Indian wars to us. It's 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 a whole process of defending ourselves. What happened to the Sioux people from there on? After all, here you are. You're a spokesman for, and you're a loyal, uh, a, a loyal uh, member of the Sioux Nation, more particularly the Lakota. Uh, it has persisted. With uh, years ago, I mentioned it during one of the breaks. A guy named McGregor, an anthropologist, did a study of the. Northern Sioux, uh, titled Warriors Without Weapons, right. in which he argued that they were a broken people. Right. That isn't really quite the case, is it? I don't consider myself a broken person at all, culturally. Um, I grew up learning about history, about incidents, about people, about heroes, just like any, any child does in any culture. Mm -hmm. And so, in a sense, I aspired to be like those people, and I connected with that history at a very early age. And I didn't sense in my grandfather and others like him who were telling stories that they were a broken person. But, they yeah. were angry and, 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 and analytical about what happened, but I didn't perceive in them. I think there's a distinction to be drawn between um, victimization, people who are victimized, and victimhood as a state of being. Yeah. Yes. And and I think that, that clearly Indian people have been victimized. And are the Lakota now, are the Sioux generally now, still angry? 
Well, I can't speak for that. I think Mr. You know, Joseph can. I think speak we to that. are. Yeah. I, I think uh, there are different kinds of anger. Mm. Every generation who learns, uh, you know, the, the our side of the story certainly feels a certain amount of anger. I did. I still do. Uh, is there a demand for some kind of restitution, or can't it be balanced? Well, I don't know. Uh, th that's a tough question, and I think if you ask, uh, you know, every Indian person you ask, you'll get a different answer. Mm -hmm. uh, I like I like to look at it this way. Maybe it's an oversimplification, but maybe that's just the idealist in me. An audience, a man from an audience I was talking to several years ago, asked me if I would rather have white people feel guilty or be aware, and I said. In an instant, I would rather have you be aware because you can hang your head in guilt for a second or two, and then it's gone. You've paid your penance. Well, we have to note that uh, there was an eruption some years ago uh, called the American Indian move, uh, Movement, which, in fact, again, uh, focused upon and chose as its ground a wounded knee and, more broadly, the Rosebud Reservation. Uh, Russell Means and others who led that, uh, that led to yet another confrontation. In a way, the war erupted again, and they were up against the feds. Well, that was uh, 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 true. And there was a different set of circumstances, maybe not different, but a continuation, as it were, probably, from my perspective, of certain kinds of circumstances. Mm -hmm. They were trying to call attention to, and they did very well, certain kinds of things that would happen, substandard housing, bad health care, racism, a lot of very relevant and, and heavy issues that they called attention to. And... Of course, when, when you do that sort of thing and when you do it in the way that they did by confrontation and violence, of course, the other side is going to react, no matter how righteous the cause yeah, the is. Is again for how long? It ran for a few months. 71, 71 days. 71 days. In, in uh, 1973. And some people were killed. Yeah, a few people were killed. But before that, there were there were conflicts in Rapid City and other places mm. and clashes with uh, law enforcement officials. I think it's interesting as well to keep in mind that mm. the American Indian movement itself began in Minneapolis. It's an, it was a movement of yeah. urban Indian people who had yeah. been relocated to the cities and, and were protesting against the treatment in cities and, and went back to places like Pine Ridge Pine and Rosebud, Rosebud looking for reconnection to community and found their hardship and meaning as well. So, there, so there's, a, there's another dimension to this, I think. By the way, as important. a matter of sheer social fact, if we have uh, the relevant numbers, and I ask this just before we pause for some commercials and then on to the phones. And let's invite calls right now. The lines are open. The number 591-7200, 591-7200. But a last matter of statistical fact. How many uh, Native Americans are still, quote, on the reservation? How many, in fact, are urbanized or living and functioning elsewhere? My understanding is the last, the last uh, uh, census figure, if we take the U.S. census, again, and we spoke about this earlier, that that figure is what it is. It's, it's, uh, it's self-identification. Didn't it, Joseph, have 55 to 60 percent uh, non-reservation uh, about that? Right, exactly. 40-60 yeah. is, the, is the ratio that I've heard, you know, 40 percent mm -hmm. still on reservation, 60 percent off. Which are the major reservations? Uh, that depends on who you ask. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm asking you at the moment. Of course, to me, the re major reservations are those in South Dakota, all the Lakota, yeah. Dakota, and Lakota. How many are there? Eight in South Dakota. How many people would you guess? Um, somewhere between 70 and 100,000. That much? Yes. And then in the Southwest, the Navajo. Uh, Navajo have the largest reservation, yeah. have the largest population. I forget what the number is, but they have 60 million acres. And, mm -hmm. Several hundred thousand. Several hundred yeah. thousand, yeah. yeah. Gentlemen, we pause for some commercials, then right on to the phones. As I said, uh, the lines are available to you right now, 
800-242-7200 for any question you want to raise or if you've got some particular experience and indeed if you are Native American and want to share some of your own thoughts or your own experience, we certainly welcome your call. 591-7200. If you are listening at some greater distance and listening on the Internet and want to reach us by email, the email address is extension720, as one word, extension720, at tribune.com. In my youth, I was a professorial type for a few years at Dartmouth College. Therefore, I'm always interested in what the Dartmouth faculty have to say. And Colin Calloway, professor of history uh, at uh, and professor of Native American studies at Dartmouth College, says about the new book uh, by Joseph Marshall the following. Born about 100 years after Crazy Horse, Joseph Marshall has drawn on oral histories passed down across the generations to find the human being behind the hero who has become a legend for the Lakota and non-Indians alike. The result is a remarkable portrait of a remarkable man. That is reaction to the book The Journey of Crazy Horse by Joseph M. Marshall III, which book is just recently published by Viking. And before we get to the phones, which we'll do in an instant, um, I, uh, Joe is giving a presentation at your place at the Newberry. He is. Tomorrow. Tom tomorrow evening, 6 to 7.30 at the Newberry Library, uh, 60 West Walton Street uh, uh, here in Chicago. Um, and uh, the, it's free and, uh, and open to the public. And so we hope, that, uh, we hope that we'll see a number of people there. And with that, gentlemen, on to the phones. Here is the first caller. Good evening. Uh, good evening, Milt. My name is Jay. I'm a first-time caller. I'll listen to you for a long time. Yes, sir. Uh, fortunately, I've uh, I've been very attracted to Plains Indians, and I've studied them for about 30 years. I had a comment, and I also had a question for the gentleman, and I have to congratulate you on how accurate um, the comments were. My first question was that I, I think um, this is nothing short of a holocaust. It was a racial holocaust against American Indians, and I understand that anywhere from 20 to 100 uh, million American Indians since Columbus were uh, literally persecuted in that regard. Um, well, it should be noted, though, that most of the uh, Amerindians <clears throat> who died after the Europeans first arrived died by virtue of smallpox and, uh, and other such diseases, uh, which were spread essentially in Mesoamerica and in Mexico. Well, there were also blankets that were issued to them with smallpox. Uh, wasn't common, and that the buffalo were wiped out as a specific plan of the government to to wipe out their food source and make them come into reservations. But I think you make an excellent point. Mm -hmm. My uh, question was that uh, in reading about the Little Bighorn and in reading about uh, Curtis's treatise on it, uh, and Roosevelt took out the fact that Curtis. Um, did believe that George Custer was inept at the very least and egomaniacal because he could see all the other white troops, uh, especially Gaul defeating uh, Reno. But my point was is that the Rosebud always struck me as almost the greatest potential um, massacre, if you will, because uh, Crazy Horse led approximately 1,000 or 1,200 troops to, uh, against uh, with Arapaho and Cheyenne against a totally unprepared crook column that had all of their ammunition in back, they were unprepared and surprised by the Indians. And if it hadn't been for the Shoshone allies, led by uh, Wooden Lake, I believe, uh, or Washaki. 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 And um, the Crow, led by, I believe, Wooden Lake, uh, totaling maybe a couple hundred gentlemen, they charged literally into the uh, flank of all of these uh, 
uh, oncoming uh, Indians, had they not done that, it's very likely, outside of Bourke's effort through the valley, um, that they very much, very likely might have wiped out uh, a great deal more um, of Crook's command than uh, they did the 200, 200 and some. Well, it's clear, uh, sir, that you are an enthusiast and know the history. Let's get some response. Mm-hmm. I think what he says is true. Uh, Crook had with him somewhere between two and 300. Maybe you know the numbers better than I do, two and 300. Crow and Shoshone, and Crow and Shoshone are, are uh, mounted, excellent mounted fighters, mm-hmm. uh, and and I think they probably saved the day for Crook in that he they were there, uh, they fought very effectively, and one of the reasons is because they were our mortal enemies and were essentially using the cavalry to wage war against us, and so he was an opportunity to prove themselves, and in a process they saved Crook. We thank the caller. We must move rather quickly. Loads of people are lined up. And we'll go directly to the next. On 5917200, you are on the air. Good evening. Good evening. Yes, sir. Uh, I hope that you can be very candid with this question. You mentioned the Buffalo Soldiers, and I would like to know the role of the African American uh, as uh, in the Warren aspect, with both the positive and the negative. If you can give some idea of what role did we play in that, and I'll hang up. Thank Don't you. Don't hang up. Stay with us, sir. Oh, all right. In terms of uh, Wounded Knee, the, the 9th Cavalry were there um, with the 7th Cavalry and participated in the incident uh, just as the, uh, the non-Indian soldiers did. Um, I've also been fascinated with the, the Negro soldiers throughout the West because they served in the Southwest as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brian, did they not? They did. They did indeed. In fairly and, how were, and how were they viewed by the, the Native American by them participating in that particular, in, in the uh, Union soldiers? My, as far as Wounded Knee was concerned, uh, the, the, we as uh, Native people, Lakota, uh, obviously didn't uh, detested what happened, and, and whoever the perpetrators were, black, white, or whoever they were. Right. Why are I, they called yeah. Buffalo Soldiers? They're called Buffalo Soldiers, I think, for a couple of, couple of reasons. One is the appearance, and, and isn't there a second reason, Joseph? The, this, the comment I've heard is that they, had a tenden- they were ferocious fighters, yeah. and, and they, they fought mm-hmm. like the buffalo. I think, I think one thing to add to that is, is that just as, uh, to amplify one of the things that Joseph said, is that, that my understanding is Native people weren't drawing a distinction based on no. race. These, are, these were members of the cavalry who were there doing, uh, doing, performing similar duties. What do we know? Again, I'm kind of statistically oriented for the moment. How many of the total force of federal troops out in the West uh, fighting the Indian wars? Uh, what proportion were were uh, African Americans? Oh, I think fairly small. I mean, yeah, uh, my yeah. guess would be you know maybe five percent, something something yeah, around not more than that. Yeah. Number. Didn't some of didn't some of the uh, uh, Africans uh, end up joining in the Native American culture? That's earlier, and that's in the southeast. The most the most uh, famous example has to do with the Seminoles in Florida, and the mm-hmm. Seminoles in the uh, in the early part of the 19th century provided safe haven for escaped slaves, and some of those escaped slaves married into Seminole culture and became, in effect, Seminole people. Sir, we thank you for the call. Thank you. For an interesting set of questions. We pause for a quick round of commercials, then directly back to Joseph Marshall III, author of the very um, interesting new book, The Journey of Crazy Horse, A Lakota History, and to Brian Hosmer of the Darcy McNichol Center for American Indian History at the Newberry Library. And back to your calls on 591 
7200 right after those commercials. Also, if you're trying to reach us and not getting through, you could always try the email. The email address being extension720 at tribune.com. We go back to the phones in a moment, but I do want to read uh, one email to you. Uh, this listener says, I would like you to ask your current guests about the Sioux tribal names, Lakota, Nakota, Dakota, Oglala, Hunkpapa, versus the term Sioux. As I understand it, Sioux actually means snake or belly crawler and is considered derogatory. Most people from the seven Sioux tribes would rather the term Sioux not be used and simply refer to the individual tribes. Yet I hear many Lakota and other Indians use the term themselves. Do they do this just because it is easier for non-Indians to understand? The words Lakota or Nakota or Dakota means friend or ally. Definitely a much better and prouder name uh, for these great peoples. He's correct. Uh, Sioux came from, if I'm not mistaken, Ojibwa. Indian word Chippewa, Indian word Natawasu, and it meant little snakes or belly crawler or little mm-hmm. enemies or something along those lines. And the French voyageurs at the time just shortened it to Sioux. And so that's how we're known, although among ourselves, we're, we're, we are Nakota, Dakota, and Lakota, the Oyate, or the people, as it were. And as I mentioned earlier, that's three linguistic designations and three geographic uh, mm-hmm. designations as well. And among the Lakota, there are seven divisions. I'm Sichangu Lakota on my mother's side and Ogallala Lakota on my father's side. And there's also the Hunkpapa, if I can remember them all. Hunkpapa, Manikanju, Itazipa, Chola, Sihasapa, and Oohenupa. And each, all of them have a different translation, obviously. Mm. Are those references to places or to patriarchal lines? Uh, places um, or more characterizations, designations, Sichangu means burnt thigh. Several hundred years ago, a group of our ancestors escaped a prairie fire and suffered horrible burns on their legs. So that's where the name mm-hmm. comes from. Ogallala means to scatter. The Ogallala were range wider than anybody. Hunkapapa means the people who camp at the end of the circle. If you visualize a very large camp in the shape of a sea, and it, it open faces uh-huh. to the west, but east, and the Hunkapapa always were at the top end of that, that open sea. Uh-huh. And Ohenupa means two kettle, two kettles or two boilings. Manikanju, Manikoju means the people who plant by their water. Uh, Itazipachola is without bows, so there's apparently a story there. And Sihasapa is black feet. That's not the black feet of Montana. Uh, this is people with black soles or black feet. That's fascinating. Let's go back to the phones. Five nine one seven two double zero, and you are on the air. Good evening. Hello. Nope. Yes, sir. Uh, my name's Jerry. I just uh, I had a couple of questions for your guest. Now's the time to ask them. Okay. Um, I'd like to preface my question with just a, a little history about myself. I'm of uh, Irish American descent, and my question has to do with the uh, the uh, mascots for a lot of the sports teams around the country. Oh yes. And this is the Urbana. People- this is the Urbana question I gather. Yeah. Go ahead. My, uh, my, my people, probably the most famous mascot would be the uh, Notre Dame Fighting Irish. And I was wondering if your guest in this modern day and age, if this really bothers Native Americans yeah. or is this just something that they don't really care about? As, as you may well know, Joe, uh, in, uh, around here, there's a big lasting controversy about the mascot down in Urbana, Chief Alinawak. Chief Alinawak. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think uh, it's safe to say that uh, on the whole, 
this whole issue of uh, team mascots is is a sensitive one to say the least among most native peoples and um, and some don't care but that's that's I think they're a minority um, I think it's on on one hand is very silly on the other hand is very degrading I guess it depends on uh, you know who's who's needs are more important our sensitivity or someone else's arrogance i mentioned earlier that I, in my youth i was on the faculty at, at dartmouth dartmouth of course has an indian on its crest used to and they, yeah. exactly and they had a lot of controversy over that and they got rid of it a few years ago and there's an old dartmouth song which yep. the students sang in those days i think they probably still do about eliezer wheelock the founder of dartmouth and it goes Eliezer Wheelock was a very pious man. He went into the wilderness to cure the Indian <laughs> with, with a good book and a keg of nails, a Bible and a drum, and 10,000 gallons of New England rum. <laughs> I think that uh, I think it's interesting that you brought up Dartmouth because uh, the current controversy that's taking place in this state and and, and seems to drag on and on and on uh, should can be looked at in some sort of context and and there's great consternation here about the possibility of changing the uh, yeah. the mascot or dropping the mascot and what might happen to the University of Illinois and I would sort of remind people that there are many institutions in this uh, country that once had Native American mascots uh, many of whom many of which have dropped them and I don't think a single one of those schools has gone out of business. No, no, to be sure. Uh, and we go back to the phones. 591-7200, you are on the air. Good evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Yes, sir. My name is Jim. I have a relatively healthy understanding that Plains Indians passed from the white perspective, at least, because that's what was most prevalent in my history books is growing up as a child. I'm trying the best to understand the both, both sides, and I'm doing my best to understand what's presently going on between the Native American relationship with, you know, the, the Eastern white people that came and took over. But I'm curious if Mr. Marshall would choose to comment on the future, if we see some sort of assimilation or separate goals and separate but equal, or just where, where do we take the knowledge from the history and, and push it towards the future? Um, there's a saying. Uh, it may sound a little silly, but I okay. think it applies. Uh, if if you forget the past, you're you're doomed to repeat it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, there, our history is ours collectively. Everybody who is in this society in this country now, that history belongs to all of us, and we all lived. Our ancestors all lived it. We're all living it now, and and I think we have a responsibility to learn the reality of history, no, no matter whether it's good or bad. Because if we don't, then we're going to do the same silly on one hand things that are done and some of the cruel things that were done mm -hmm. and and, sure. and ignorance is is not not one of the things that 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 mm -hmm. uh, that i favor and i think the more you know about what happened in all cases and and for that you would have to listen to all the voices that are part of history no matter who it is i, I find interesting that most of the history of the oregon trail and correct me if i'm wrong Ryan, but comes from women who kept journals some of the most interesting uh, right. stories, too. Yeah. Yet, yet many historians, white male historians, don't talk about that. Right. So I think we have to delve into those kinds of facts. Interesting. Our, our thanks to the caller, an interesting query. Uh, and, and here's a very interesting one uh, on the email, which I read to you now. Historian Stephen Ambrose suggests that Custer was determined to beat Crook and Terry to the Sioux Lodges at the Little Bighorn to keep all the fame for himself in fighting and winning what was predicted to be 
the last major battle of the Indian Wars. This was especially important to Custer as he expected to be nominated as the Democratic candidate for the U.S. presidency in 1876, according to Ambrose. The Democratic convention was going on in New York as he rode into battle. Were his political aspirations the cause of his zealousness at Little Bighorn? Well, I think there's some uh, disagreement about that. I've I never mean, heard that. Story. I mean, one of the one of the things we need to bear in mind is that uh, that Custer was survived by his wife, uh, by for many decades. Uh, uh, Libby Custer died in 1932, and she devoted a good portion of her life in the aftermath to burnishing his reputation. Among the many things that she discussed or that she promoted was the notion that Custer enjoyed a sort of an inevitable rise to the presidency. I, you know, I think that the reality is more complex. Is than there that. anything in the Annals of the uh, the Democratic Convention of 1876. No, not that I that. not that I know of, and and Custer had had enjoyed a a you know a very sort of up and down career. Let's yeah. bear in mind. I mean, he'd had his ups and he'd had some major downs. He was court-martialed once, and and so he may have uh, had that in his mind. But I I would say. But it wasn't in anybody else's mind. I I think not in too many people's mind. What do you think, Joseph? That's probably true. I mean, everything I've read about him really doesn't indicate that. I mean, we all have our opinions about every everybody in history. Makes a great story, though. Yeah. And um, we pause for a last quick round of commercials, then right back to the phones. The number remains 591-7200. Here's a point I think that needs to be made. I just want to try it out. I'm not sure that I'm right. Yes, I am sure that I'm right. Uh, movements of invasion and suppression of uh, the indigenes is common throughout human history. When Genghis Khan and the various other Khans roll across uh, the uh, western part of Asia and then on into Europe, they kill, they plunder, they rape. When uh, Tamerlane does the same, he does the same. When Hitler, in his great Drang nach Osten, the march to the east, uh, invades, uh, goes beyond the Polish border where he had made the temporary deal with the Soviets and invades the Soviet Union and all the rest of Eastern Europe, they kill. Not only the Holocaust and killing the Jews, but they have a policy of wiping out, thinning out the uh, uh, the Slav stock so as to make more room for German settlement. Uh, when the Brits go into Africa, though they want to dominate, or into India, but they're conflicted because they've got Christian concern, which really agitates them, and they've got to rationalize what they're doing and find higher motives. And the same is true, I'm sure, of the American invasion of the Indian West. What do you think? I, I, I agree. It's just, it's, it, I think... At, at the core of this is is the, the the definition of civilization, what is civilized and what is not. Mm -hmm. And I think that over time, as we look back on history, we we arrive at our own definitions from our own cultural, individual identities or, or purviews of the world. What is civilized and what is not. Euro Americans, by and large, consider native people as uncivilized. That was only a definition. That's not a reality. That's only a definition. On the other hand, we regard you all as uncivilized at a certain point in history. So we came from that viewpoint as well. But it, it's it's a matter, again, it, to me it's very simple. Maybe I'm just too simple-minded, but it's a matter of numbers. Um, mm -hmm. Over time, there were too many on the other side and not enough of us. But you're right. This is, I mean, natives did that too in, in this continent. You know, the larger groups pushed aside conquered, if you will, and got into an imperialistic bent and shoved other people aside. You mean Indian groups suppressing yes. other Indian groups? groups? Yeah. But I put a stress on the Christian conscience. as Just as, for example, in the history of slavery in the South, uh, 
before the Civil War. There's a vast amount of strained and, and, and difficult theological reasoning to try to justify I think it's, I think slavery it, itself. I think it's partly the Christian conscience. I yeah. also think that... Um, that that uh, uh, America's democratic principles play a part of this. Mm -hmm. When the founding fathers constructed Indian policy, in fact, one of the first things they did when, under the Washington administration was figure out an Indian policy. They they constructed a policy that they hoped would be defined by expansion with honor. They wanted both, and you might say, from our perspective, that means you have your cake and eat it too, right? right? But but I think expansion with honor was a meaningful concept, and not just a Christian concept. They wanted the United States to be a different kind of society than European societies. The Founding Fathers were capable also of certain particular prejudices which, in a way, rationalized the suppression of the Native Americans. Listen to Benjamin Franklin in his autobiography. If it be the design of Providence to extirpate these savages, in order to make room for the cultivators of the earth, it seems not improbable that rum may be the appointed means. <laughs> it has already annihilated all the tribes who formerly inhabited the seacoast. True. Mm -hmm. Teddy Roosevelt, in the last days of his administration, signed an executive order that gave away 10 million acres of native land. And he's one of the four faces on Mount Rushmore. To be sure. In Indian Territory. Exactly. <laughs> uh, let's work in one more quick call, at least. Here it is. Hello, you're on the air. Good evening. Yes, sir. Uh, before I, pr I preclude my question, I'd just like to say that uh, the late lamented Captain Fetterman of the, the fight of 1867 said that he could go through the whole Sioux Nation with 80 men, and exactly that was the count of all the dead that he had made. But my question was, uh, what was the uh, what what as as a chief Red Cloud as the political leader of either the Cheyenne or the Sioux Nation, whatever tribe he was? In my readings, the last couple of years, I've never understood that what his role was toward the latter part after the closement of the Bozeman Trail between 1868 and the Custer Massacre, uh, what what kind of political clout did he have? Let's, let's, we get the question, sir. Let's move quickly because time's almost gone. Sure. After 1868, and he signed an agreement to end the Bozeman Trail War, as it were, he went to an agency and stayed there, and that's where he was uh, during the Battle of the Little Bighorn. So he did not have any within the, the extended tribes of the Sioux Nation that he did not have the power as, or he just not Not that he once did. He, he chose to do that. Uh, he was, right. He, he adopted a different approach. He, right. he, uh, he, he led uh, people who uh, favored accommodation of some sort, and so yes. he had a different kind of influence and a different message, indeed. Our thanks to that caller. Gentlemen, we have about a minute left. What goes on in contemporary scholarship relating to the history of Native Americans and their present status? Oh, I think there's a lot going on. I mean, there's been a revolution in, in scholarship, and it proceeds from a number of directions. I think the most important direction is the presence of Native scholars themselves telling them telling mm -hmm. Native stories from Native perspectives. Like Joe Marshall. Like Joe Marshall, from a community perspective. Uh, in fact, then this is this is a a theme that non-Indian scholars have, uh, uh, many anyway, have taken up as well, where they, where they have uh, seen their role 
as learning from and, and working with Native communities in order to, number one, tell a story that is more holistic in its orientation, but also produce research that has a practical, tangible benefit to it. In other words, rather than simply taking things from Native communities, it is also uh, there's also a, an ethic uh, that, that, uh, that uh, suggests that scholars should give something back, whatever that may be. Exactly. I noted this wonderful book of yours, The Journey of Crazy Horse, is written almost as if it were being told around a campfire. That's That was my intent, because that's how I heard a lot of those it's stories. It's beautifully wrought in, in that Well, form. thank you for that. That's yeah. uh, um, I'm a storyteller, and I try yeah. to live up to that. It's, it's of great interest, not only biographically and historically, but indeed as a literary document. Uh, that book by Joseph M. Marshall III is The Journey of Crazy Horse, and it's just recently published by Viking. Quickly, again, uh, the occasion tomorrow when Joe is talking at the Newbury. 6 o'clock, uh, 6 to 7.30 at the Newbury Library, 60 West Walton Street, uh, between Clark and Dearborn. Everyone's invited. Everyone's invited. And with that, we come to the end of our uh, program tonight, except for a quick note about tomorrow. This is History Week on Extension 720, and tomorrow we look at one of the great conquerors, namely Alexander the Great, uh, with John Prevass, author of the new book, Envy of the Gods, Alexander the Great's Ill-Fated Journey Across Asia. Joining us as well will be Brian Lavelle, professor of classics at Loyola University here in Chicago. And with that, our thanks once again to Joseph Marshall and to Brian Hosmer for joining us tonight and giving us, I thought, a memorable and fascinating program. And thanks to all for listening. With you again tomorrow at 9. Until then, a cordial good night to all.